and don't get to that 30,000 word mark like I did and just go, this makes no sense, it's full of plot holes, it's not working, it just feels too hard. You just push through, finish it and read, read and read in the categories that you want to publish into. Welcome to Rights for Women, a podcast all about celebrating women's voices and supporting women writers. I'm Pamela Cook, women's fiction author, writing teacher, mentor and podcaster. Before beginning today's chat, I would like to acknowledge and pay my respects to the Dharawal people, the traditional custodians of the land on which this podcast is being recorded, along with the traditional owners of the land throughout Australia. And a quick reminder that there could be strong language and adult concepts discussed in this podcast, so please be aware of this if you have children around. Let's relax on the convo couch and chat to this week's guest. Hi everyone, Pam here. Welcome to another episode of Rights for Women. It's Thursday the 3rd of February, I think. It's the 3rd, could be the 4th. Today I have a very special guest host, Joe Riccioni, who has been a guest host on the podcast before and Joe always does a fabulous job. Today she is talking to two fellow YA authors, Nina Kenwood and Meg Gatland-Venice. And it's a really great conversation between these three YA authors, although I would argue that all three of them, their books can be read by adults as well. And, of course, there's always that fabulous crossover between YA and adult. So many people love to read books labelled as YA, but not necessarily just for a YA audience. And Joe Riccioni's book, The Branded, certainly falls into that category. So it's great to actually have Joe on again as a guest host. This episode was recorded last year before Christmas. I just keep that in mind as you're listening. If there's any references to time, which there, there are a few, just remember that it was recorded then. And uh, because we had the recess over January and Rights for Women was off the air while we had a little break, it's just coming to you now. So really great to have these three fabulous YA authors on the Convo couch and to listen in on their really interesting conversation about writing YA. Before we get to that, a little personal update from me. I am cheering, I am celebrating because yesterday I actually pressed send on the novella that I've been writing and furiously beavering away on over the course of January and December, of course, but with the deadline being 31st of January, I really was beavering away in January itself while I had the time off from the podcast, which gave me a little bit more breathing space to focus on the writing. And I have to say, it's been, even though I've never written a novella before, it's been a great experience. I did find it hard condensing the whole plot in my head down into 30,000 words. So now it's with the editor. We'll see how I went with that. And I'm waiting for her comments. But it was a really great exercising getting back into regular writing for me. What I'm doing now is dividing my day and the mornings are for writing. So I'm starting early 7 till 10 or 7 till 11 and doing some writing with a little break in there just to get up and stretch and walk around and have a cuppa and then focusing on my teaching and podcasting work later in the day. So I always find that I write better in the morning. I do also find dedicating that daily time, which we all know, of course, I know these things. I've known it for a long time, haven't necessarily always done it. So having the deadline for the novella really got me back into a great writing habit. And I have to say, got me enjoying it again. I I was actually finding myself eager to get back to the computer, to get some more words on the page and to find out what was going to happen next. So 
even though I had for the novella an overall idea of what was happening, I didn't know day to day what was really going to happen in that next scene. A lovely always to have your characters surprise you and to have them say and do things that you really didn't know they were going to do. And for me, that's part of the excitement of sitting down at the computer and writing a new scene. And of course, always remembering that when it's first draft, all of that can be refined and changed, cut if it needs to be cut, added to if it needs to be added to, and certainly tweaked. Writing the novella, uh, which is called A Christmas to Remember, there are quite a lot of references in there to time and memory and the past, the present and the future. So it's a little bit of a Scrooge theme there, but not really. But yeah, Christmas to Remember, that will be out as part of an anthology that HQ HarperCollins are publishing in October. It's got a Christmas theme. All the protagonists in the anthology are vets. So I will be in there alongside Penelope Janu, Stella Quinn, Alyssa Callan and Lily Malone. And great to be in such fantastic company for the anthology. So that will be coming out in October and I'll be looking forward to getting the edits for that very soon. I am going on next week to start doing a very light revision and adding some new scenes to my very first novel, Black Wattle Lake, which came out 10 years ago, just over 10 years ago in December 2012. And I haven't actually announced this kind of anywhere else yet, but that is actually coming out as an audio book. And so there is going to be an anniversary edition of that, which will have some new scenes and will be tweaked a little bit for the audio version. So that's coming out with Belinda, B-O-L-I-N-D-A, which is a fantastic Australian audio company. And I'm really excited to have Blackwater Look Lake finally after 10 years going on to audio. And I've got a little bit more information on the whole audio thing to share with you very soon. So I'll do that next week on the podcast. I also just wanted to mention, I do still have a few places for my Turn Up the Tension course. This is a course that I have run numerous times before. I'm adding to it. I'm giving extra examples. I'm including a video where I'll be talking everyone through the slides. There are eight modules. It's starting on the 1st of March. Uh, Every week on the Wednesday, a new module will come out over the course of eight weeks. You don't have to do them on the on that day. Hopefully, you can do them over the course of the week because we will have a Zoom call each week where all the participants will also chat together, share their experiences, share their examples, and get some feedback from myself each week and hopefully some feedback from each other too. And there will also be a Facebook group where we can connect and share ideas and share thoughts on the thing, the examples in the course. Everybody will also be asked to choose a model text. I'm going back to my English teacher days. For me, that whole analysis of a book that you love and seeing how that author does it and then applying that where you can to your own writing is really such a fantastic way of learning. So I'm incorporating that into the course as well. And uh, it's definitely a much deeper, fuller course than it has been previously. And you can find more details of that on my website at pamelacook.com.au. There are links in the Instagram and Facebook pages to that. And I've got a few people already signed up and there's definitely space for more. So if you are interested in that, if you have any writer friends who are interested in that, please share the details and I'd love to have you on board. It'd be great to have some Rights for Women listeners doing the Turn Up the Tension course. If you want any more information on that, just email me either through the uh, Rights for Women website or my own pamelacook.com.au website and I can fill you in. That's about all for my update. I did have a fantastic weekend last weekend, just a little bit of 
outside of writing news, I, I took my gorgeous boy Baloo, my quarter horse, to a show. It was our fifth show together and uh, for the first time I got a blue ribbon on him. In fact, I got two blue ribbons because there were two judges and for the class and it was a walk-jog class. I do Western riding, so it's all very sedate and jogging along and wearing the bling type stuff but it was just really great to have the hard work that we've been doing pay off and to finally feel that I've really turned a corner with him and to just have that connection and that trust and I've said this before but the parallels between writing and writing never cease to amaze me that whole thing about trusting in your own ability trusting in the muse if you like or when you're riding you've got to trust the horse to a great extent as well as trusting yourself and having the confidence that you can actually do it You've done it before. You know what you're doing. Just believe in yourself and go for it. And I'm a massive advocate of that with writing as well. Shout out this week also to Danuka McKenzie, who has been on the podcast previously and has a new book out, Taken. So I'm going along to the launch of Taken on Sunday at Newtown and uh, congrats to Danuka. Looking forward to catching up with you and a, a few writer people there. And uh, as always, it's great to see so much great Australian fiction out there. And this year, there is a lot coming. It's going to be great to have some of those writers on the podcast. Currently, I am reading Happy Place by Emily Henry. Absolutely loving it. Anybody who is a regular listener will know that I am an Emily Henry freak and have finished all three of her novels. And in fact, I have been listening to Book Lovers, multiple times on audio to help me go to sleep. And because I don't have to listen in for the story, because I already know it, just the voice and the characters and all that stuff that's familiar just helps me to drift off into a nice peaceful sleep with that voice in my head. That's been really lovely. And But really enjoying Happy Place, which is Emily Henry's upcoming novel out, I believe, in April. Just quietly, I have put a little pitch in to try and get Emily on the podcast. So please send up the good vibes into the universe and see if we can make that happen. So anyway, that's enough from me. Thank you for tuning in. Thank you to everybody who is supporting the podcast on Patreon. It's fantastic to have such great support for Rights for Women. If you love what you're hearing, if you're enjoying episodes, please see if you can take the time to just do a rating or a review wherever you listen in for your podcasts. And also don't forget that you can watch the video of the podcast at rightsforwomen.com. It's always uploaded there with the alongside the audio and also on the Rights for Women YouTube channel. So thank you so much to everybody for listening. I hope you're enjoying the new season's episodes. And so today let's welcome guest host Joe Riccioni and YA authors Nina Kenwood and Meg Gatland to the Rights for Women Convo Couch. Enjoy. All right, here we are. Welcome to the Rights for Women podcast. I am very lucky today to have not one, but two amazing YA writers in the studio talking to me about their recent release YA books. Nina Kenwood, welcome. Nina's award-winning Australian writer living in Melbourne. Her debut novel, It Sounded Better in My Head, won the Text Prize and was a finalist for the American Library Association's William C. Morris Award. It was a CBCA notable book, as well as being shortlisted for the New South Wales Premier's Literary Award and the Queensland Literary Awards, the Russell Prize for Human Writing, the Indie Book Awards and the Australian Book Industry Awards. Phew! Nina, what an achievement. It's Better in My Head has been published in six languages and it's been optioned for film. But we're here today to talk about your second novel, which only just came out this month, Unnecessary Drama, which again is published by text and will come out in the US as well next year. So welcome, Nina. Hi, thanks for having me. 
<laughs> That's quite an illustrious introduction, isn't it? That poem needs to be shortened. It's actually not on your website. I got that from your publisher's website. So, Meg, welcome. Meg Gatlin Venice is a high school drama teacher who lives on the central coast of New South Wales. She's been writing stories for as long as she can remember and reading them for even longer. Equal to her love of words is her passion for championing local youths and fostering important conversation about issues facing young Australians today. Her first novel, I Had Such Friends, was published in 2018 by Pantera Press. And her second novel, When Only One, came out this year, just a few months ago, again, published by Pantera. Welcome, Meg. Thank you. It's so good to be here. Oh, good stuff. Um, Well, I've always been a reader of YA literature. Do you know the statistics on readers of YA? I think it's something around 30% of YA readers are actually over the age of 18. Is that correct? Have you heard that before? Yeah, I think it's confusing because it's it's hard to know when someone's buying it. An adult is buying a YA book in the shop, are they buying it themselves or for their child? Or I'm not sure how you capture an accurate picture, but yes, yeah, large adult readership. Yeah, and it is confusing as well because what I used to do is I'd buy them for my teen daughter, but I'd also read them myself. So you've also got that situation as well. And it's also, it can be a bit of a misnomer, can't it, YA? Because you are dealing with, you know, just because the the character is in that under 18's age bracket doesn't necessarily mean the book isn't going to be enjoyable or pertinent or moving to an, an adult reader. Do you agree? Yeah, definitely. Yeah. So I wanted to start kick off by asking you both about your influences when you were a teenager. What books were you reading that became influential to you as writers? Nina, do you want to kick off? Yeah, I was a teenager in the 90s and there was a real boom of Australian YA at that time. I That was when John Marsden's Tomorrow series came out. It was when Isabel Carmody was writing her Ober Newton series. It was when Looking for Ella Brandy came out. So those were my kind of three core authors and books. I read Ober, the first three Ober Newton books endlessly. I was obsessed with John Marsden's, all of his books, the Tomorrow When the War Began series. And I loved, loved, loved Looking for Ella Brandy. So those were sort of my core. I When I was a teenager, I went to... On the property that John Marsden runs now is a school. Before it was a school, he ran writing camps there. And I went on a writing camp when I was yeah to his property and it was amazing. And that was when I sort of decided that's it, I have to be a writer. Because his school is quite an alternative school, isn't it? It doesn't follow. Yeah, I believe so. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, that would have been really formative, I think, as a teenager. Mm. Yeah. Meg, what about you? What influenced you when you were? A teenager. Uh, well, I grew up in the, I was a teenager in the 2000s. So Harry Potter was my whole life. Like I couldn't wait to get home from school so I could go back to Hogwarts and dive back into Harry Potter. So that was a big thing. But I also loved, I also loved Melina Marchetta. Um, and On the Jellicoe Road was one of my favorite books of all time, still is. And I also loved Jacqueline Moriarty and her Ashfield Brook. Ashbury Bookfield High series with Finding Cassie Crazy and Feeling Sorry for Celia. And those books, I feel like, were the reason I became a writer, that series, that Jacqueline Moriarty series. And because I just, I just loved them so much. I must have read them 10 times. And uh, what's really amazing is that Jacqueline Moriarty gave me an endorsement quote for my book, When Only One, and it's on the book, which is like 
mind blowing for me because <laughs> she was my absolute idol growing up and uh, so that's incredible for me yeah it's that is so meaningful it really makes you feel as though you've achieved something doesn't it when someone you really idolize endorses your book yeah for sure yeah that's great I'm a lot older than you guys so I was growing up I was a teenager in the 80s so we hadn't really experienced that boom of YA books then so it was it felt for me as if I kind of went from reading things like C.S. Lewis and Roald Dahl to suddenly moving into the classics like Thomas Hardy and D.H. Lawrence and the Brontes. So there was definitely a gap there for many, many decades before. I mean, there were things like, I mean, I do remember the first time I read Catcher in the Rye and that was just so, you know, all the outsiders, for example, that they were so influential. But I read them later as an adult, which didn't seem to be like the most meaningful time to read them. But yeah, so it's, it's just been amazing to see this gap in the market be filled over the last decades. And kids now have so many more choices to even within the YA genre, you've got romance, you've got fantasy, you've got mystery, you've got, you know, very contemporary issues based novels. So it's great. They've got the, they've got the whole pick, really. So Nina, let's start with you. Can you tell us a little bit about your latest novel? Yes. So it's called Unnecessary Drama and it's a rom-com <clears throat> set in a share house in Melbourne during first year uni. It's about, the main character is called Brooke and she is moving from a small town to Melbourne to go to uni for the first time. And she is very type A, very organised, very anxious. She likes rules. She's moving into the share house with what she thinks is two strangers. And she's excited to sort of put her high school life behind her, have a new start. And then she finds out that one of the housemates she's living with is actually Jessie, her friend turned nemesis from high school. And that sets the scene for her first year at uni and the relationship that develops between her and Jessie. And also it's also about, you know, making new friends, finding your footing when you move out of home, going to uni, all of those kind of firsts that you can discover when you when you do grow up in a small town and you move to the city for the first time yeah and your first book it sounded better in my head was also about new adults I think I like to think of this genre less as young adult than new adult because they're they're adulting for the first time aren't they your characters yeah Yeah. I mean I still it still sits sort of firmly in YA it's still written with a teen audience in mind first but it is yes it's about well I say YA is about firsts and I guess these are this is in capturing a different kind of firsts the first of moving out of home and leaving that structure of school and and really feeling like oh I'm supposed to be an adult but I'm not quite yet feeling yeah definitely Meg what about you your book is very different from Nina's Yeah, so my latest book is called When Only One and it's set in a small sort of rural isolated Australian town and it's the central characters are a group of teenagers in year 12 about to do the HSC and this horrible event happens at the school, this terrifying ordeal that that changes everything about, about the school but the book is actually set like a year before this event happens and it's about the lead up to this this horrible awful thing that happens at the school and so most of the book you spend trying to work out who's involved and why does it happen and you're sort of teasing out 
what are the things that happened, the, the catalysts that caused this horrible thing to happen at the school? It's quite so a good way of chewing a book, actually, because a good way of making sure that tension's high throughout the book, because, you know, you te- like you said, you tease the reader with something bad has happened, something really bad, and we know it's possibly a shooting, but we don't know the circumstances around it. And it's month by month we get more information about what's happened. But by then we know the characters, so we're invested in the characters' lives and we, you know, fall in love with them a bit and we care for them. So, yeah, it's a really great way of structuring a book. Did you base it on anything or did it just come to you miraculously overnight? Not really. I actually, before it was ever going to be about a school shooting, I had the characters. So the main characters are Sam, he's a surfer, and Emily, his sort of childhood best friend, and then Ray, who's the new girl at the school. So I had them very early on. It was much later down the track that I decided to introduce this sort of school shooting, horrible, awful thing that happens at the school. And I actually wrote it during lockdown, and I guess lots of awful things were happening all over the world. So maybe that's what inspired me. But I always, like every story I've ever written, it starts with the characters first, and then the plot sort of comes from afterwards for me. Does that happen with you, Nina, as well? Do you start with characters or scenario? Absolutely start with character. My books are very, you know, my books are kind of plotless. Well, not plotless, but <clears throat> plot definitely comes last. And that's the hardest thing I find. And because my books are so the first person present tense very much in the character's head. So it's finding that character's voice is how I find my way into yeah. my books. And dialogue is so big for you, Nina, isn't it? Most of your books are actually dialogue, like a lot of rom-coms are, but yours in particular. And the dialogue is absolutely fantastic. I love it. Very funny, very true to this age group. How do you make sure you stay true to to that age group? As you get older, obviously, you're not part of that age group anymore. Mm. How do you you make sure that you stay Um, true? I mean, with dialogue specifically, that's just something I enjoy writing and that comes easily as I said plot comes plot is hard for me character and dialogue I love could do that all day (laughs) that's like my draft zero is just internal thoughts and dialogue and then you know I have to actually make something happen around that but the in terms of staying in touch with young people I guess it's I do watch a lot of like I try I consume a lot of pop culture and media that I think the excuse young and I read very widely in the young adult genre so I know what my sort of author peers are doing and I think it's also just being able to tap into like the world is very different social media all of that wasn't around when I was a teenager but the feelings are the same and the a lot of the insecurities and the anxieties and the especially romantic entanglements that's all the same like from when I was young those those feelings are still there no matter what you know, whether you're in the 1950s or now, I think that you're feeling when you first have a crush on someone or you're feeling insecure about how you look or any of those elements are quite universal. And so, and and they're very, it's quite easy for me to tap into how I felt as a teenager, I think. So, yeah, that's, yeah, it's true. Those the, the, those themes are universal, aren't they? If we look back at Shakespeare, if we look back at Victorian novels, and you know, it's the same sort of the same universal themes, which is is great. It shows that we as a human race don't change that much, even though the circumstances in which we place ourselves do a little bit. Nina, oh, actually, I was 
Looking at some social media of the day, and I noticed that a fantasy writer, Lynette Noni, was putting a call out on her stories to see whether kids were still using the term first dibs. That was really interesting, using social media to get some immediate feedback on whether that kind of lingo was still current. But Nina, that's not something you would necessarily have to face because you're a teacher. So you're in amongst the kids for a job, right? Oh, was that me? Yes. Sorry, (laughs) did I say Nina? Yeah, you're in in amongst, surrounding yourself by children, with children because of your job. Yeah, so I spend all day, every day, surrounded by teenagers. So it's very easy for me to stay up to date, I suppose, with the lingo that the kids are using these days. But you're right, it is, you know, I see the same things happening that happened to me at high school. It's all very similar. Everything is the end of the world you know, when you're 17. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, I do feel like in my job, I'm very privileged to be able to see into the lives of these kids and the sort of things that they deal with every day and there are there are differences especially social media is such a huge part of their lives every moment of every day is you know documented online for everyone to see which is is Mm. totally different to when I was at school but yeah there are actually like sometimes I have characters inspired by my students and sometimes there's little quotes here and there that might be something a kid actually said in class that I thought was so funny I had to write it down but yeah I do get do they ever pull you up on that though Meg do they ever say (laughs) Hey, Miss, I said that. They don't say anything like that. <laughs> they ha- nobody's noticed yet. Okay. I don't know. Do you ever ask them whether, look, I want a character to say this, would that be like, does that sound like a 16-year-old boy? Would you ever ask them stuff uh-huh. like that? No, not directly, but I do teach drama, so it's very personal and it's there's a lot of sort of role play that happens. So it, yeah. is, it just sort of naturally happens in my classes that the kids can be themselves and can talk about things that they may not talk about in, you know, maths or science or other subjects. Yeah, your dialogue in both your books is so true and so authentic. So you can tell that you've had, you're listening, you're really good listeners to the young voice and the pre- and, and the preoccupations of young people as well. On that topic, though, and this applies perhaps a little bit more to Meg, um, although I'll come to you in a minute, Nina, but Meg, your, some of your subject matter is really full-on it's you know you deal with abuse neglect domestic violence suicide you've got the shooting they're quite hard-hitting topics do you ever sort of think oh I, I need to tone it down or do you ever worry about the reception from librarians or teachers saying look this is just too much or I I mean I've ex- I've seen firsthand you know the the things that my students deal with all the time it's it's in their lives so writing it in a book that's that's not going to change the fact that they're already experiencing these things um and because I'm also a year advisor so I sort of do a lot of welfare stuff in my job as well and it's it's incredible the things that these kids deal with like before they even get to school in the morning they might not have even had breakfast or had dinner the night before or they might not have clean clothes to wear or whatever. Like there, there's so many things that we don't realise are happening in their lives, but they are. And um, I think it's really important to write about them and to show these kids that they're not alone and that it's okay to ask for help. And I really try and focus on that a lot in my books that lots of awful things happen, but there are things you can do about it and you, you, there are people that can help you if you reach out. So, yeah, yeah I don't know. I think I'd rather do that then write something fluffy that yeah. didn't deal with any issues that didn't really make an impact. 
yeah yeah and one of the things actually struck home with me because I was a, a high school teacher too I used to teach English and back in the UK and I taught in a very challenging school um, it's half social work half teaching really and one of the students was doing exactly what one of your characters was doing which was bringing up one of their younger siblings they were already underage they're only 16 bringing up like a, a, a five or six year old without any adults being around and keeping it from social services and it was funny it came up in conversation in my writers group the other day and a girlfriend in my writers group said her she knew she had friends who were doing the same thing when she was a teenager and you know just holding out holding out until that year that they were going to turn 17 and they would be allowed to be the guardian or, or whenever it was I think they're allowed some allowances when they're near close to 17 or 18 but yeah so that really really struck home with me but Nina your books do you know they come across as very comedic very rom-com you're using lots of the familiar tropes of romantic comedy but you but in both your novels you deal with something that happens in the past that is soul destroying for your main character right and, and that in itself as as much as it's not you know maybe as heavy-handed and sort of social services worthy that, uh, like Meg's themes are it can really change the trajectory of your characters lives so yeah how do you highlight on what you know that's going to be do you start with your character and then work out what will be their hanging well with my first book it sounded better in my head I knew that I really wanted to explore what happens when you have really bad skin when you have really bad acne and the kind of Mm. trauma that that can lead to which you know it doesn't it's often played for humor in in films there's not that many books that dig deep into what happens when you have really bad skin and so I wanted to explore that because I know I personally knew that trauma and I know that it's something that really is really really hard as for a teenager so that was always going to be like sort of the backbone of Natalie, my main character in that book. But in Unnecessary Drama, I'm a very anxious person and I wrote it during COVID times, which was a very anxious time. So I think she's a very, she's a character dealing with a lot of anxiety and issues around anxiety and issues around with her family and her father and her sister and their drinking and how that makes her feel and her need to be in control and all of that. So I wanted all of that in there. I guess it's for me, I want the reading of the book to be a joyful experience. It's a rom-com. I want it to make you happy when you're reading it. But I also, when building the character, I spend a lot of time digging into their insecurities and the darker sides of things and, and really trying to make sure I know them and what is what makes them well-rounded and to kind of lightly include that in the book, if that makes sense. Yeah, I mean, there are. It's interesting how you do your research on your characters because obviously, this one thing though is informing why they're behaving the way they are for the whole of the book, really, in terms of, you know, Brooks wanting to control everything. You can see that it comes from the fact that her father and her sister, to some degree, are out of control. They, mm. they just they put her in situations where she's you know she's worried about them she, and they could be harmful situations and she mm. needs to control that so there's that there is that really serious element I love the fact that mm. there is a serious element underneath the banter and the humor and the laughs and those like you say with the first book with the skin issue and this book with and I, I love the fact in fact in this book and I don't think I'm giving away too many spoilers but 
it hinges on something that is so familiar to so many people and it's the awful awkwardness of the first kiss yes (laughs) (laughs) i think everybody it's almost universally experienced if it's not the first kiss it was the next kiss or whatever where that awkward moment where it's just (laughs) and that is about that how did you get that as your I actually, I knew the whole relationship between Brooke and Jesse that they were going to have a falling out in high school and that sort of, you know, to develop this, now they're enemies and they're living together, what had happened in their backstory was crucial for the whole book to hang on and for their entire relationship. And I actually had a different backstory for them originally and it wasn't working. And I'd given the draft to the publisher at this point and we talked about it and we, I knew that was the part I had to go back in the redraft and it wasn't a huge change but yes adding in making it a betrayal and a moment that is seems so small but you can understand why it would stay with her for remind me asking what was the original thing then was it just not deep enough or just not wasn't quite enough yeah it was similar but it wasn't there was no kiss there was no kiss that went wrong it was a different kind of betrayal but then I decided it, it needed the, the kiss and yeah. his kind of rejection of her or her perceiving that he's re- like the the miscommunication and then what he did to her and all of that was a crucial kind of yeah. small but moment that would stay with you for forever. Those kind it's of so real. Though. That are so deep inside you and, and sort of become part of how you think of yourself and then you know it spirals out into am I unlovable who am I in a relationship and all of that so yeah I mean it's so real the way you deal with it in that this split second of Jesse the male character sort of jumping up because they've had this awful sort of head bumping (laughs) nose squashing kiss and him jumping up because his friends burst in on them and then they go, oh, do you, you know, do you fancy Brooke? And he goes, oh, fuck no, no, no. You know, it's that full-on teen bravado. Mm. Uh, and it's so true to life. I can remember my own time, ta- my own teen years and my friends crying on the bus home yeah. because night yep. similar had happened to them. So it's very, it's very true to life. And, it, and I love the way that the whole novel spins out of that tiny, mm. tiny event, which I think is, is a really good, good thing. So. When you're writing in the YA space, how do you pick themes that are going to be relevant that you think are going to be relevant to your audience? This might be a bit of a tricky question, I think, but is it is it something that you toy with a few ideas and then think that, you know, you actually sift them or them out if you think they're not going to be relevant to your particular audience? Or do you just write the book that you want to write? Tricky. <laughs> tricky question. Well, I, I'd say I base a lot of my themes on just the things that I see at work. I'm working on a book at the moment with one of the characters has an eating disorder, which is a a huge thing. And it seems to be a big thing just at the moment at my school. So that was something I really wanted to shine a light on. So I'm very much inspired by just what I see every day. And I try and keep it as relevant as I can. But something like eating disorders has been an issue for a very long time. So obviously, the same sort of things keep happening. And I'm just yeah. So that's me. Yeah. And it does, it's eating disorders do seem to go in year groups. Like you, you, you tend to find that in a year, when I was a teacher anyway, you'd notice that. And when my kids were at school, 
you'd notice that a particular year had definite one or two or three or four girls who were all seem to have eating disorders and they're all feeding off each other no excuse yeah. me you know they're all sort of like really yeah each other up about those, those it does things. seem to be like a trend that goes through sort of friendship groups mm. somehow yeah yeah and Nina what about you what what do you get inspired by your work are you still working in the book industry yeah so I have been sort of on and off yes I worked for readings the bookshop for eight years and that was actually the best sort of inspiration to be a writer because I've just never read so many books as I read at that time in my life and readings runs prizes and they run a YA prize and I was a judge on the YA prize for one year because the staff are the judges and that's just looking at first and second books so it was like reading all the debut YA that came out gives you the best sort of overview of what's being published what kind of where the bar is and what you're trying to get to and what kind of books you fall in love with and what you really enjoy in the space so that just being around books and talking about books is the best kind of inspiration for writing but uh, in terms of what I explore both my books are kind of coming of age rom-com humor and that's just kind of naturally how I write so it's not I'm not setting out with a plan really to explore certain themes so much as finding the character and then taking so it from you there. You start with your character and then the themes spin out of, of that character. Yeah. And so who inspires you for characters? Do you Is it like trope-based, a type of character that you want to develop or is it people that you meet or a bit of both? Hmm. I think it's just sitting down and writing to like find the voice and... Yeah. The for me, it's all about internal sort of dialogue and voice and getting the character, throwing them into situations, dialogue, and building it out from there. And and then you just kind of find the rhythm, find the voice, and go, okay, this is I've got the character now. But you know, like all books, music, pop culture, all kinds of things are inspiring. I think if you're a writer, you're constantly looking. Looking, but I mean, Meg, you have the dream job because you're just surrounded yeah. by teenagers. You would be getting ideas and content constantly. So, I am. Yeah, it is, it is. It's good, but then I don't have a lot of time to write. That's the downside, I suppose. But yeah, I also think a lot of my characters, especially my protagonists, there's a lot of me in them. There's a lot of there's a lot of Meg in there as well. But yeah, I. I never seem to have trouble coming up with characters. I think we're very similar. Um, the characters come quite easily and then the plot is the thing that is harder to do. All right. So you you mentioned time to write. And I know, Meg, I've had a conversation with you about this before. Tell us a little bit about your process because I know that you write in blocks, don't you, when you've got holiday. Tell us a little bit about how you go about writing because I think this will interest a lot of people who listen to the show who are writers, who are struggling to find time to write? Yeah, well, I'm lucky as a teacher that I have quite good holidays. So I do most of my writing during the school holidays and I'm able to still then have a weekend. So I try and write, depending on how I'm feeling, 1,000, 2,000 words a day on the weekdays and then I still can take a break on the weekends during the school holidays. So that's how I try to do it, although I was very lucky during lockdown, I was working from home. So I just had way more time on my hands because most of my time as a drama teacher is taking up with rehearsals, the productions and things, which none of that was happening. So I just had all this time 
So I was able to write my second book quite quickly during that time. But yeah, I just, I have to be very disciplined and I have to set goals and try and stick to those goals every day, sit at the computer, do some writing. But yeah, otherwise I just wouldn't get it done. Yeah. And then presumably coming close to edits, you would have to be working at night when you've got deadlines, wouldn't you? Yeah. So once it gets into the editing phase, then all bets are off. I'm doing it around the clock, really. But the actual writing phase, I have a bit more flexibility with my time. Um, And Pantera Press are very good. They're not super demanding with deadlines, which is very nice. Yeah. Did you struggle with your second novel, Meg? Because lots of people do talk about, and you're both on second novels now, aren't you? Did you, what was your experience of writing the second novel? Did you struggle with it or have second novel syndrome at all? I did. This novel is actually my third novel. There is a second novel sitting on my computer, very sadly, unpublished. Uh, How many words did you get to, Meg, with that Oh, I I finished it. I I rewrote it probably three or four times, almost from scratch. I just couldn't couldn't get words. It was second book syndrome. I don't know what it is, but it was just no matter what I did, I couldn't make it work. So eventually I just had to give up on it and, and put it to the side. And then this book, when I went only one, which is technically my third book, I wrote really quickly and it was much easier. So I actually just had to sort of put the second book aside and just focus on the third one and then all of a sudden it just came out. It just like fell out of me that went only one. Yeah. Yeah. Um, how was it for you, Nina? Because you had the added pressure of winning lots and lots or getting shortlisted for lots and lots of awards, which has its own legacy doesn't it because you think can I do it again have I got it in me to Mm. do it again because I mean that happened to me with my first book and then my second book again same experiences as Meg absolutely died underneath me and that's why I ended up writing a fantasy book but yeah well how how was your experience the three months before my first book came out I had my first child so it was a very intense time and then I went going to 2020 I was thinking okay I'm gonna write my next book parenting get back to work it's gonna be a great year big year and then of course COVID hit and I just everything was kind of in chaos work was in chaos I was struggling with you know putting my daughter in daycare and then having to take her out all the time because lockdowns and they have very very strict sickness policies during COVID times and first year of daycare your kids getting sick all the time anyway um, yeah so it was just a very chaotic time I was very anxious I was trying to write around all of this and I was getting nowhere like just nothing I was just putting no words on the page I just was frozen and panicked and didn't know what to do, didn't know if COVID should be in the book or what the world was going. It was, it's really hard to write. It was a Every weird day. time, wasn't it? Yeah. Because I think half the writers were like, I don't know what I'm doing. I'm all over the place. I can't settle. And the other half of the writers were like, this is great. You know, right, yeah. right, 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 right. All through COVID. <laughs> I had no time and I was writing a book about or had the idea at the time I hadn't started about first year uni, but you know, no one was going to uni because of COVID and it all just felt very, I didn't know what to do. And so I really, really struggled to just get started and find the time to write at all, which is kind of a separate thing around motherhood and creativity that is just, it's just, I'd, I'd written my first book around a full-time job and I I hadn't found it that hard because I just wrote it on weekends. I just gave up a lot of my weekends, but I really enjoyed the process. So it was okay. But 
that that option was gone now when you have a toddler you you can't just write all night and weekends and yeah so I really struggled around all of those changes coming together COVID lockdowns parenting it just was not I just had no space to think and write and I did I got started but to be honest the bulk of the book was written after I quit my job so I had a period of like six months where I didn't work and I just wrote it and then I got another job. Right. Yeah. I've heard I've heard of writers. In fact, I did that myself as well, where, you know, you just have that big block of time to get the bones down at least. And then it, you can seem to handle yeah. the editorial when you've got a job. But um, it just really depends what else is going on in your life and motherhood it's really strange isn't it that maybe it doesn't apply to you Meg I'm not sure but I only felt like I only had the urge to write when I was a mum when I just had my child so and it was really odd that that feeling came to me at the worst possible time to choose to write because yeah. I just have no time you know and you can't do what you can do when you're single in that you just go all right, I'll, I can't sleep tonight, so I'm just going to stay up and write all night and then I'll just sleep tomorrow because you've got this baby to look after. Yes, yes. and yeah. I had a child who didn't sleep, so it was like yeah. the idea of getting up at 4 a.m. to write was not going to happen because I needed every single moment that she was asleep, I had to be asleep. But, yes, I mean, some people, yeah, like you, they have a child and the creativity kind of bursts out of them. That is not how I felt at all. I hated being pregnant and I felt like all the creativity had left my body and then you know you I'm trying to write a rom-com and tap into being young and you never feel kind of older or more weary or less <laughs> rom-commy than in that yes. six months after having a baby where it's just like Ugh. I guess that's so, what makes the fantasy all the sweeter though doesn't it because you're hankering <laughs> hankering for a time when I mean and that might be why so many readers love you know young adult or new adult romance and rom-com because they're hankering for a time which didn't have all those added responsibilities but after so it was like six months nine months out from that my brain kind of came back to life again and the creativity came back it all i it was finding coming back to being myself again i think you almost um, probably settled by then as well yeah so. okay so tell us a little bit about, Meg, what was your path to publication like? Because this is another question that I think interests for a lot of emerging writers. They want to know how you went about writing your first book and getting the getting it published, basically. Yeah, well, my first book, I started writing it when I was in my last year of university and then I finished it my first year of teaching. And I was actually living in London at the time and I sent it to a few literary agents in England, but they weren't interested it's a very Australian book, so I can see why it's not really marketable in England so much. So then I got home and I literally just did a Google search of Australian publishers and I sent it to all of them. And it was a year and a half later that I heard back from Pantera Press. So wow. by that point, I had given up. I just thought, well, this book's probably terrible. Nobody's ever going to publish it. And then I got this email from... James at Pantera Press and he said just read your book and love it and I'm going to take it to the rest of the team and I just I literally jumped on the bed I was so excited <laughs> that's great yeah because I had just given up I thought oh I must be terrible and all my friends are just being nice when they say they enjoy my books so yeah so it was a really long time so I guess my main advice would be don't give up because 
you never know. Like it, it takes a long time, but you can get there. And uh, I then I actually heard back from a second publisher even later than Pantera Press, who were also interested. But by that time, I'd already signed the contract with Pantera, which I'm very glad I did because they're yeah. lovely. Um, was that a two book deal that you got, Meg? Or it was three, three. Okay. Yeah. Oh, good. All right, Nina. How did yours work? I I was a terrible give. I was I gave up all the time. So I would write, get halfway, you know, get to that soggy middle section, and think this is terrible. Twenty five thousand words always seemed to be my give up point. And I had about ten manuscripts that I'd just given up on. I I just never finished it until I started joined a writing group with two people I worked with, and that really helped. We had like a spreadsheet with word count goals and we would be really focused and you know once you're accountable to someone else yeah. it starts it's much easier and you're all doing it together and that's like NaNoWriMo works because you feel like you're part of something so it was like an ongoing kind of version of that I guess we we're always encouraging each other and so I finally finished something I polished it up and I sent it in for the text and I amazingly was lucky enough to win that and it all flowed from there. Yeah, prizes are very good at giving you extra exposure even regardless of that people sometimes go on and get a publishing deal anyway without winning a prize. But if you have won the prize, it's almost like you've automatically got that marketing behind you, which makes you highly attractive as a writer. Did you sign two books or three books with tech? I just had one just when I won the prize, it was just the one book. Mm -hmm. And then after it came out, I went and I got a two book deal from text for and the Sue drama and my next book and what what are you working on now I'm working on an adult book actually a change yes but it's all you know it's in the messy the messy drafting phase where I don't even I'm not even sure I know what it's about so (laughs) I I say oh you, you say oh I'm working on an adult book but I think both your books are adult books anyway you know like they're full on could sit in the rom-com shelves with lots of other really successful romantic comedy writers and they could go in the the teen section as well that's the beauty of I think I definitely think you're writing crossover books yeah um, I think so, they are well, it's kind of a natural step to do an adult rom-com from here so you mean your main character is now adult adult rather than that's at uni right. or yeah yeah. Okay. Oh, that's interesting. I look forward. When when do you think that's going to be ready oh, to be live? <laughs> You've got I no. Say it would curse it. Okay. Yeah. Uh, that is a bit of a, <laughs> a bit of a dangerous. Fragile. Yes. Don't don't even say anything about it. it may all fall apart. <laughs> Meg, what about you? What are you working on now? Yeah. So I'm working on my third book at the moment. I've written fifty thousand words. So far, my goal is to get to 70,000 by the end of the January holidays. That seems you could do that, I think. I think I could. Even if I write a 1,000 words a day, I can do that. But I'll try and do 2,000 so it doesn't take up the whole holidays. Yeah. Uh, But I find the last last 20,000 words for me is the hardest part because I've done all the exciting bits and all the dialogue, and then I'm going in and filling in, like, descriptions. Oh, okay. You write a bare bones and then you go and fill that. So I like, I write a plan. So I have like 25 chapters. This is what's going to happen in each chapter. And then I write, like, I'll go and do the dialogue and I'll go and do sort of, and then the last bit I do usually is describing things. Mm, That's that's an amazing way to write. 
Yeah. So if you read my book now, it's mostly just all the dialogue and plot points without actually, you wouldn't have any idea what it looked like really in the town. That is so unusual. I mean, I know that I've met other writers who write like that for sure. And I think Charlotte Wood actually talks about doing a bare bones of about 40,000 words and going back and, and filling in. But I'm one of those writers, I have to do each chapter. It has to be pretty substantial. And when I go and then I work chrono- chronologically. And then when I go back, I'm literally, edit- I'm almost line editing rather than anything else. I'm really, I can't move. I'm more like the Zadie Smith school. Not that I'm like Zadie Smith, but her, I know that Zadie Smith says she can't move on until one chapter is pretty pretty much good. And then what about you, Nina? How do you work? So, yeah, I would do like what I call draft zero because I can't even call it draft one because it's so nothing. <laughs> it's just <laughs> finding the character's voice and nothing else like other characters, plot, nothing else. Characters might just come and go. It's just about finding some getting into the voice and that could be any length. Um, I did a 60,000 word draft zero for Unnecessary Drama, which was really just like exploring all of Brooke's character and her backstory and all of that. But maybe 10,000 words of it was used in later drafts. That was really just finding her. I don't plan very well. So (laughs) I end up doing, you know, six drafts, maybe nine drafts to where I'm changing things, building it, fixing the plot, fixing things, building out characters and things. But, yeah, it's not an efficient way to write. (laughs) need to plan better. But suddenly you find yourself a character's acting, like when you're writing, things happen that you hadn't planned on or a character comes back or causes some chaos that you didn't realise they were going to do until you were in the chapter. So it's nice to let them do that. But I think I I am trying to get better at planning. I'm trying. Yeah, it's it's really interesting actually because I was having this conversation with Stacey McEwen and I was quite surprised when she said, no, she's a real plotter, she plots everything out. And and I said, well, what do you mean when you plot? What, how, how much plotting do you do? She goes, well, it might only just be a couple of sentences of each chapter of what I've got to write next. And I'm like, oh, well, if it's only like a, a kind of sentence, then I guess I do plot because I always thought of, of myself as being very unorganized pants. And, um, you know, I guess I do start with the kind of like an idea of this chapter hmm. has to be you know, character A meeting character B and they have a fight about this. So I guess I am kind of plotting, but it's really minimal, really, really minimal. So that allows for that organic sort of things coming from left of field. Certain things might take over that you weren't expecting. Um, I I think I know the emotional arc, but I don't know, like, all the actual stuff. Yeah, that's a good way of putting it, actually, yeah, because you're not just working plot-wise on an action level, are you, working on a character development? Yes, I know where I want emotionally them to end up in the journey and do you guys use a writing software do you use like Scrivener or one of the other others you just or I know a lot of people swear by Scrivener I don't really like it I'm strictly Google Docs because I like knowing it's safe I don't have to like it's I can log in on any computer at any time and access my document it's not just like a word doc that has to constantly be backed up and I'd be worrying about it same as yeah yeah how about you Meg what do you use yeah I'm the same I use Google Docs I used to use Microsoft Word and then one day I lost 20,000 words worth of writing um Mm. so I never use Microsoft Word ever again yeah 
I was on the phone to Microsoft Tech Support in tears. Oh, no. I've lost all these words and I managed to get it back. Thank goodness, but never again. Google it's Docs. such an awful feeling, isn't it? It's that die in the belly feeling of, yeah. Um, yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, writing fantasy almost becomes untenable in Microsoft Word. Anything, as soon as you mm. go over 90,000 words, it kind of shits itself, basically. <laughs> it doesn't matter how good your computer is. It's just literally the software can't cope. One of the things I do like about Scrivener, I use Scrivener, is you can, I just love the fact that you can, grab a chapter insert it in another chapter or you can just move drag and drop pieces i think yes if i was trying to write fantasy and you're world building and you've got all of those components i can see scrivener would be amazing Mm. i did buy a physical whiteboard for my new book oh and i do like the idea of like right it, it is working sort of because then it's always there, even when I'm walking past, it's like a little prompt to think of your book as you are sort of going about your day. Yeah, people do say about using mood boards, don't they, to be able to just look at the mood board, get into the mood of the book within a couple of seconds so that you're not actually floundering about, you know, where am I, where am I supposed to be sort of thing. Yeah, so do you use other things like Pinterest or mood boards, Meg, at all? I do, and I actually, I go around and take photos of houses and things just like around on the central coast for inspiration and then I have like a folder full of photos and I do all my initial planning by hand in a like in an actual notebook wow that's interesting yeah 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 um all right have you got any advice for emerging writers I always like to ask this question don't give up and the first draft is going to look bad it's just going to be terrible and that's fine and don't get to that 30,000 word mark like I did and just go this makes no sense it's full of plot holes it's not working it just feels too hard you just push through finish it and read read and read in the categories that you want to publish into you need to know what is being published who's right and yeah certainly for YA if you have not read any YA since you were a teenager and it's been 20 or 30 years you've got to know sort of what's being published now yeah, the space has changed a hell of a lot. How about you, Meg? Uh, well, I totally agree with everything that Nina said. I would also say just write as much as you can. I remember coming home from school every afternoon, sitting at the computer and writing every day. Stuff that never got published, nobody ever read, but it's like it's, it's the same as anything. You have to practice. Nobody is amazing at basketball or singing or dancing without practicing. You have to practice writing just like you would practice any other skill that would be my first top tip and something that I say to my kids all the time is write about things that make you mad because that's what you're passionate about things that really piss you off about the world or society those are the things that you're going to write really good stuff about because you feel so passionately about them so that would be my other tip write about things that make you mad yeah (laughs) yeah that's a good very good piece of advice actually because you know automatically there's going to be passion and intention Mm -hmm conflict there to start with yeah for sure what have you read recently I'm going to finish on my last question which I always like asking what have you read recently that you could recommend to our readers out I read and probably my favorite YA of this year so far is The Museum of Broken Things by Lauren Draper just Mm -hmm. love it it's just it gave me the feelings I felt reading like Kath Crowley and Melina Marchetta it's very just beautiful classic YA of friendships and romance and a small town and there's a mystery and there's actually there's a lot of plot in there and grief and 
growing up and it's just a really beautiful YA book. Good stuff. Good one. Look out for that one. What about you, Meg? Well, I've just read the Karen M. McManus books, One of Us is Lying and One of Us is Next, mm. which I read in like one sitting. I found them so addictive and that very so good. Yeah. very inspiring as well. But I also not that long ago read The Colours of Madeline series by Jacqueline Moriarty, of course, my favourite person, <laughs> which is a, a young adult fantasy sort of magical realism series, kind of like Narnia, Harry Potter-esque, which I adored as well. So highly recommend Colours of Madeline by Jacqueline Moriarty. Fantastic. Well, thanks, ladies, for being on the show. I really enjoyed talking to both of you, Nina Kenwood, Meg Gatlin-Vaness. So happy for you with your second books out there in the marketplace. I hope they do really, really well. Look out for them. And I hope that you'll come back on the show when you've got another book out. Thank you. Thank you so much. All right. You're very welcome. Thanks for listening to Rights for Women. I hope you've enjoyed my chat with this week's guest. If you did, I'd love it if you could add a quick rating or review wherever you get your podcasts so others can more easily find the episodes. Don't forget to check out the backlist on the Rights for Women website. So much great writing advice in the library there. And you can also find the transcript of today's chat on the website too. You can find details on the website on how to support the podcast through Patreon, and get exclusive access to the extended audio and video of the monthly craft episode. And you can connect with me through the website at rightsforwomen.com, on Instagram and Twitter at W4W Podcast, the Facebook page Rights for Women, find me and my writing at pamelacook.com.au. Have a great week, and remember, every word you write, you're one word closer to typing the end.